Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. All eyes are on the gridiron as teams are back for another football season. And as always, BetOnline is your number one spot for all the pro and college action this season. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use promo code BLEAVE. B-L-E-A-V, to receive your bonus today. From football, basketball, boxing, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers on the 2021 season. Bet online, where the game starts. What you heard that Lions fan at Ford Field say was that Justin Tucker, the Ravens kicker, was about to kick a 66-yard game-winning field goal, an NFL record, to send the Lions to 0-3. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Listen to what this fan said after the kick. Lions fans, we knew that was going to happen. He said, Lions fans... We knew that was going to happen. I've been thinking about this video for three days since Justin Tucker buried that game winner to set an NFL record and plunge the Lions to 0-3 because deep down in my own mind, I knew Tucker was going to make the kick too. NFL fans everywhere knew Tucker was going to make the kick because good things just can't happen to the Detroit Lions. I'm only 20 years old. The Lions have been relatively successful for most of my lifetime. I was 7 years old when the 0-16 Lions team happened. I don't remember that season, or at the very least, I don't remember watching any Lions football that season. I remember Matthew Stafford at Georgia, but I don't remember Matthew Stafford being anything other than a success in the NFL. And Dominican Sue dominating for the Lions in the early 2010s. That was my introduction to Detroit. And yet, I still knew good things weren't going to happen to the Detroit Lions because good things never, ever happened to the Detroit Lions. Not for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40, 50, 60 years of Lions football. Nothing good ever happens to Detroit. And the Lions got another dose of that reality on Sunday, maybe in the most painful fashion we've seen. This wasn't a player retiring. This wasn't another 4-12 and season. This was one painful moment shot to the heart when you had a 99.9% chance of winning and magically found a way to mess it up. So, in the spirit of this terrible week for the Lions, as another season comes and goes, three weeks in, September passes, and you already know you have nothing to play for, here is the sad oral history of the Detroit Lions, which we can break into six parts. The 1960s and 70s, the 1980s, the 1990s of Barry Sanders, the end of Barry Sanders, 0-16, Stafford, and Sue leading into this modern time of Man Campbell. It is a six-decade story of pain 
and heartache and sadness for the Detroit Lions that really brings the definition of insanity into full focus is that at a certain point doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results so I went into the archives the history books the Wikipedia pages and started looking up a bunch of stuff on the Lions I spent an hour going through the history of the Lions that I didn't know some of the crazy parallels that exist around that franchise and the one conclusion I could make is that the Detroit Lions do the same thing over and over again and expect different results in the old-timey definition of insanity. So here on this middle-of-the-week Wednesday or Thursday or Friday or however and whenever it is that you're listening, I wanted to present a sad oral history of the Detroit Lions. With the second pick... In the 2007 NFL Draft, the Detroit Lions take wide receiver Calvin Johnson, Georgia Tech. The Detroit Lions select Matthew Stafford, quarterback. The Detroit Lions select Indomitian Sue. So the oral history is going to be broken into six parts, and we'll go all the way back to uh, the very beginning for the Lions. This is a 60-year oral history after all, but to start off, I want to stay in 2021 because Man Campbell obviously creates a lot of content around the Lions, and Detroit finds themselves now 0-3 in a long process of a rebuild, their second coach post-Jim Caldwell, but wanted to start with that Jim Caldwell point because in my research, I found the most amazing parallel I think I've seen in sports. It's truly unbelievable how much the Lions dysfunction parallels itself. And so this early in the pod, I want to talk about how the Lions are the definition of insanity, which is, of course, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. In 2016, Calvin Johnson retired at the age of 31 from the NFL. First ballot Hall of Famer. He is the first player I remember as like a rookie second-year player making the Hall of Fame. It made me feel kind of old to see him get into the Hall of Fame. But 2016, Calvin Johnson retires early. And the only precedent for a player of his caliber retiring early was, of course, Barry Sanders the Detroit Lions running back who retired in 1999, two years after an MVP season, and first ballot Hall of Famer the day he retired. And so here's the parallels between the Barry Sanders and Calvin Johnson retirement, other than just the crazy fact that Calvin Johnson and Barry Sanders both retired at an early age for the same franchise and had some animosity between them as they left. So Calvin Johnson retires in 2016. Two years later, the Detroit Lions fire head coach Jim Caldwell after he went 18-14 and 14 in the two seasons immediately after Johnson retired. They were two 9-7 seasons. One, they went to the playoffs. One, they just missed the playoffs by a tiebreaker in 2017. Two years above 500, fire Jim Caldwell. The next four years after Jim Caldwell gets fired for having an, an above 500 record, the Lions go 14-36 and 1, which ties them for the second worst record in the NFL 
during that span. In 1999, Barry Sanders retires early. Two years later, the Lions fire Bobby Ross as head coach after Bobby Ross went 13-12, and slightly above 500, in the two years following when Barry Sanders retired. You want to know how it goes next? The Lions in the next four seasons go 16-48, which gives them the second worst record in the NFL during that span. It is unbelievable the parallels of failure and insanity within the Detroit Lions franchise. And to be honest, that isn't even the lowest point because no other franchise does that. No other franchise, well, the Indianapolis Colts recently, but up to that point, no other franchise had forced their star player into retirement at an early age once, nonetheless twice, and then came back, fired the coach that had seen success outside of that player, and replaced him with a rotating door of crap that makes them perpetually mediocre. We talk about perpetually mediocre franchises a lot in the NFL, but none of these perpetually mediocre franchises have gone 60 consecutive years with perpetual mediocrity. Even the Bengals, who are the next closest on this list with 30-plus years of perpetual mediocrity, even they found themselves going to five straight playoffs in the early 2010s and making the playoffs seven times in 15 years under Marvin Lewis. Like, it could be a whole lot worse in the AFC than the Bengals. You could be the Raiders, you could be the Dolphins, you could be the Jets, you could be the Buffalo Bills up until recently. Um, You could be the Denver Broncos up until recently. Like, it gets worse than being the Cincinnati Bengals in the AFC. What's difficult about or the Jacksonville Jaguars too count on that list, but what's difficult about the Lions is that they've had little levels of success, as I talked about early on. Like my, I don't remember the Lions being an absolute tire fire until just recently. Like the Lions were too young for. I knew of the 0 16 season, but I was seven years old when it happened. And I remember the Lions of Calvin Johnson and Matthew Stafford going to playoffs and being in the thick of things most seasons, and Indomitian Sue being a all-pro defensive tackle until he got the giant contract with Miami, and then he wasn't as great, and then he went to Tampa, and all of a sudden he was great again, and I think he had that year with the Rams too mixed in there, but I think of Indomitian Sue as like this generational-type prospect at defensive tackle. Like, the the Lions were like the Browns of right now before the Browns. The Browns were 1-31 across two seasons. The Lions were 2-30 across two seasons uh, in my lifetime. So before the Lions, there was, or before the Browns, the Lions were the team that was just bottoming out to the lowest possible rung. But we'll get to that in a minute, because to understand that, we have to go all the way back to part one of our six parts of the oral history. And it begins in the 1960s and 70s for the Detroit Lions. Because the Detroit Lions in the 1960s were a very, very good team. And then in the 1950s, they almost ran the sport with the Cleveland Browns. It's funny to think about now, but they won three championships in 
the 1950s and in the early 1960s they played in the quote-unquote playoff bowl which was basically a third place game in the nfl during the 60s before the super bowl was created but they went to three consecutive playoff bowls they finished third place in the nfl for three consecutive seasons in the early 1960s and then that's when everything starts to fall apart for the detroit lions is George Wilson, the coach who won their third championship, also ends up working as their general manager for a little bit. He ends up getting fired after a 7-5-2 season in 1964. And this is where the rotating door starts to fall off a bit for Detroit because Detroit then falls from second place in the division to fourth, and they'd miss the playoffs. Then they'd go to sixth, which is the bottom of that division. At the time, the NFL had about 16 teams, so they were near the bottom, but not the bottom yet. So they weren't, they were mediocre, but not bad enough to get top draft picks and get, you know, for example, Joe Namath or Terry Bradshaw or Roger Staubach, like the worst teams in the league would be picking up during the 1960s. But they had a 7-5 and five season, a 6-7-1 and one season, a 4-9-1 and one season, which was their worst, and it led to them drafting Mel Farr at the top of the NFL draft, and he was a running back who was picked number 7 by the Detroit Lions out of UCLA. They took Lem Barney in that draft, and he would go on to win Defensive Rookie of the Year, make seven Pro Bowls, probably should make a case. Uh, oh, actually, he is in the Hall of Fame. Apologies. Hall of Famer. Uh, his numbers retired by the Lions, like Lem Barney and, uh, sorry, <laughs> Lem Barney is the defensive player they get out of that draft. Mel Farr is the reward for their losing. Like it could be a lot worse for the Detroit Lions, but they're, they're hanging around that mediocre tier for much of the 1960s, rotating coaches here and there. And that one draft that nets them Mel Farr and Hall of Famer Len Barney ends up getting them to one playoff appearance in the 1970s, which is literally in the year 1970. They go 10-4. and Less people make the playoffs at this time, to be fair. So they play the Cowboys, and the Cowboys would go on to lose the Super Bowl that year to the Baltimore Colts, and they would lose the game by an unbelievable 1960s football score of 5-0. to because of course they were playing football games that were 5 to 0 in the 1960s and 70s but that one playoff appearance uh with Earl McCulloch and Lem Barney and Mel Farr they end up getting just close enough to making the playoffs and uh that that was their one big success in Detroit in the 1960s and then the 1970s once again is a period of average football so they they were mediocre before but this time it feels quite a bit more average because this is at a time with realignment and expansion in the nfl so fewer and fewer teams make the playoffs because there's more divisions than there used to be but the lions just keep missing the playoffs every year they have a run after lem farney of five consecutive second place finishes at a time where there was not a wild card in the nfl they go 7-6-1, they go 8-5-1, 6-7-1, 7-7, 7-7. year, they'd go 6-8 and eight as the NFL expands a couple more teams. They'd go 6-8 again in 1977. 1978, they would go 7-9. and nine. 
all before they finally bought him out in 1979, fired their head coach, bring in Monty Clark, and they had finally, after a decade of being mediocre, a decade of being the Washington football team, of win one, lose one, win one, lose one, win one, lose one, win one, lose one, every single week for a decade. Did not make the playoffs, because again, this is if there had been a wild card, they would have made the wild card a few times. But it was this cycle of, we're going to sign players to fill positions of need, we're going to draft players at the positions we have them, and we're just going to roll with what we have and make a little bit of money on the side. The Lions end up being a middle-of-the-road team at an ever-changing time in the NFL. And so expansion happens in the 1970s. The merger happened about a decade earlier, creating the Super Bowl. And through much of the 70s, the Lions have this mediocre run where they made one playoff appearance in 20 years, which is not as bad as it would sound now. Because again, in some of these 8-5 and five seasons and 7-7 seven and seven seasons, they would have made the playoffs. Now, would they have been bounced immediately by the Cowboys of the world and the uh, who else would be good at that time? The Philadelphia Eagles of the world? Absolutely. The, those teams would have probably rocked up on them a little bit, including the Purple People Eater Vikings, who were the team that kept beating them in that division. Remember the Vikings made it to four Super Bowls in the 1970s? They were first in the division when the Lions were finishing second. Fact... This is the divisions that Bud Grant's Purple People Eater Minnesota Vikings won in the 1970s. They won the division in 1969 when the Lions finished second. 1970, Lions finished second. 1971, Vikings win the division, Lions finish second. 1972, the Vikings finished third, but the Lions finished second as well. Don't know who won the division that year, but still, you have the Vikings finishing... 1973, winning the division, Lions finished second. 1974, win the division, Lions finished second. 1975, Lions win the or Vikings win the division, Lions finished second, just missed the playoffs. 1976, Vikings win the division, Lions finished second in the division. 1978, Lions finished third in the division, Vikings finished first. 1979 is finally when the Vikings start to tail off. But it's also at a time where the Detroit Lions start to suck. And this is a division that also has the Green Bay Packers, who have a quick little revitalization, and the Chicago Bears, who are about to hire Mike Ditka to go through the 1960s, or sorry, the 1980s. All that stuff leads up to part two of the Detroit Lions oral history, the 1980s. And the 1980s begin in literally the year 1980, for the Detroit Lions. Misnomer about that. The 1980s don't technically start until 1981, but the Detroit, the new decade doesn't officially start, I should say, but the Detroit Lions end up with 1980s number one pick in the draft. And with that number one pick, they select Heisman Trophy winning running back Billy Sims from the University of Nebraska. And this is at a time where running backs are, are way more important than the quarterbacks and drafting a franchise running back can turn your fortunes overnight. Uh, it happened to the Bills with O.J. Simpson in the 1960s, the Oilers with Earl Campbell, the Cowboys with Tony Dorsett. Drafting that franchise running back can turn your, t turn your franchise overnight. And the Lions were bad enough to get the number one pick to select Billy Sims for head coach Monty Clark. Monty Clark had come over from the San Francisco 49ers to then coach 
the Detroit Lions in 1978, lose all those games, but he gets to keep his head coaching role. And in the first year with Billy Sims at the helm, at the very least, the Lions are fun and interesting. Billy Sims wins Rookie of the Year, and they immediately go from 2-14 and to 9-7 and because you can turn your tides overnight with that franchise running back following year. Billy Sims gets injured, Lions go 8-8, eight and eight, and I think Billy Sims still made a Pro Bowl that year, even though he gets hurt towards the end of the season. Lions go 8-8, eight and eight, finish second in the Central Division. 1982, strike-shortened season that year. The Lions get the very last playoff spot at sub-500, 4-5. and five. They had to do an expanded playoff that year. They only played nine games. A few of them were with scabs. If you're looking for a really good documentary, they do a documentary on a 30-for-30 30 30 around the Washington football team scab players during the 1982 lockout. Uh, it's really interesting. I would recommend people tuning into that because it's a really fascinating story or I think that might have been 1988 one of the two 1980 or sorry 1991 let's see Washington won in 82 86 and 80 or 91 so it was either 86 or 82 I think it was the 82 one where they do a documentary on the that Washington team so I think I also mentioned earlier that Billy Sims was from Nebraska. He's Oklahoma. It's easy to make that mistake. Those two schools were both dominant in the 70s and 80s, but I think he's actually Oklahoma, not Nebraska. I think I made that mistake earlier. Um, so they do not get to... They, they lose in the first round of the playoffs to Washington, and then in 1983, they win the division in the peak of the Billy Sims Detroit Lions teams. They get the third seed in the NFC and they host, or I'm sorry, they travel to San Francisco to battle Joe Montana and the 49ers. And what seems like it would be a drubbing keeps the Lions right in it. Like the Lions are getting ready to win their first playoff game since 1963. They are in the lead right down to the end. Joe Montana leads a drive down six, down the field to score a touchdown, but it's still not over. The Lions get the ball 24-23 late in the game, and Detroit ends up missing a game-winning field goal by kicker Eddie Murray at the very end of their one playoff game of the 1980s. They lose 24-23, and everything starts falling apart for the Lions after that because In 1984, Billy Sims ends up having a catastrophic knee injury that would end his NFL career because at the time, it was more likely that a knee injury would end up ending someone's career. He would not play another down in the NFL, and uh, the Detroit Lions would fall into mediocrity for the rest of the 1980s. They'd fire Monty Clark and hire... Arizona State coach Daryl Rogers, who would end up finishing his Lions tenure with a record of 16 and 30. Wait, what is that? 16 and 32 in his time as Lions coach, and he would be fired at the end of the 1988 season. And so that 1988 season does end up producing. The pick that ends up leading us into part three of the Lions oral history, which is, of course, 
the 1990s and Barry Sanders. Because Barry Sanders ends up being the third pick in the 1989 draft. Following Daryl Rogers' firing, they hire Wayne Fontes as head coach. And Wayne Fontes would be the coach of the year during that magical run for the Lions. Their best season they've had in 60 years during Barry Sanders' third season in the NFL. Overnight, they turned around from being the number three pick in the draft, getting that star running back. Again, the parallels are unbelievable on this Detroit Lions story because Billy Sims is the running back that turns around the franchise overnight. He ends up dominating the sport for four years, ends up having an injury, and has to retire early. Barry Sanders comes in. By year three, he has taken the Lions to 12-4. and four. They are whooping ass across the NFL and in the NFC Central Division. They end up getting to the playoffs facing Troy Aikman's Dallas Cowboys. We go on to win the Super Bowl two seasons later, and they whomped, whomped on the Cowboys. They won 38-6. to It's probably the most memorable thing that you think of when you think of the Detroit Lions at this point. If you even are young like me, you know that the Detroit Lions beat the Dallas Cowboys in 1991 if you know anything about the Detroit Lions franchise during the time of Barry Sanders. And they make it to the conference championship and they lose to the Washington, previously Washington racial slurs. And I don't know why I paused. I knew I was going to say racial slurs instead of the actual racial slur. But they lose to the Washington racial slurs who go on to win the Super Bowl. And actually, it would be the following year, I misquoted earlier, the following year, the Dallas Cowboys would win their first of back-to-back Super Bowls, which means the Detroit Lions were the team that last beat the Dallas Cowboys for two and a half years through the playoffs. And the following year, the Lions would, in Lions fashion, finish 5-11, and close to last place in the NFC Central. I don't know why that ended up happening. Um, unless Barry Sanders suffered an injury or something, which I do not know about, but Rodney Pete was the quarterback of the team, and the Lions went 5-11 and after coming within one game of making it to their first Super Bowl, their most successful season in 30 years for a poverty-stricken franchise that also is 30 years ago this year, and they've never gotten back to that point. So in 1993, Barry Sanders comes back, and he gets injured towards the back end of the season, misses their playoff game, but the Lions end up making the playoffs as the winners of a very weak NFC Central. They play a wild card game against the Packers, which then launches another dynasty across the next two years. Because in 1993 and 1994, the Detroit Lions were, at the time, the powerhouse of their division. The Bears were terrible at the time with the last remnants of the 85 Super Bowl shufflers falling apart. Mike Ditka would get fired after 1993. The Minnesota Vikings had been terrible for a while. And so the Detroit Lions were the powerhouse with Barry Sanders in a weak division during the 90s. And in 1993 and 1994, the power shifted within the division, where the the Lions were still really good, winning divisions by default because they got to play the Vikings and Bears four times a year. But the Green Bay Packers, with quarterback Brett Favre and Mike Holmgren, were ready to start establishing themselves 
as the best team in that division and really one of the best teams in the sport. And so in 1993, they get their first taste of the playoffs in the wild card. They would beat the Detroit Lions in 1994. The Lions were a wild card and the Packers, this time with more experience under their belt, Brett Favre would win offensive or I Brett Favre would win an MVP in the following two seasons I think I think he wins it 98 99 2000 so maybe it's a little longer than that but 1994 the Packers again beat the Detroit Lions 1995 the Lions make the playoffs again they play the Philadelphia Eagles and the Philadelphia Eagles hang 58 points on the Detroit Lions in 1995 and the following year I mean, again, the parallels are unbelievable in this story. But again, we told you the story about the winning coach getting fired. One 5-11 and season in 1996. And out the door was Wayne Fontas. And in the door would be Bobby Ross. Now, that one turned out okay. Bobby Ross turned out to be a pretty good coach. But the Lions didn't really have the patience for their coach at that point. Barry Sanders was coming off of multiple... 1500 yard seasons in a row and then in 1995 when I mean he did play a full season that year but of course you know Barry Sanders playing for an irrelevant team makes people look up and say we only have so much of a window left we need more from you and so they end up moving on from the coach in 1996 despite the fact Barry Sanders had his third consecutive 1500 yard season and in 1997 he would rush for 2000 yards just the fifth running back to ever rush for 2000 yards and Barry Sanders wins the MVP to go along with his second offensive player of the year the Lions would get the sixth seed by virtue of, and this is the thing with running backs that we learned later on is like a great running back like Derrick Henry and Todd Gurley in a salary cap sport, which the NFL was in 1997. They moved to the salary cap in 1994. A salary capped sport has running backs dominate, but still can't quite get you over the top. And so they get to the sixth seed. They lose to the Buccaneers with Tony Dungy, who were slowly establishing themselves as a dynastic team. 1998. Barry Sanders rushes for 1,400 yards. They finish 5-11 and again with a terrible offensive line, but he still finds a way to get 1,400 yards and almost lead the league in rushing, only behind like three guys and one of them being Terrell Davis, who had 2,000 yards. So not saying he was almost Terrell Davis, but with a terrible offensive line, was still somehow the fourth leading rusher in the NFL. Barry Sanders had been healthy for five consecutive seasons never missed a game and then this leads us to part four right in and it happens on in august of 1999 is the turn from part three of the oral history into part four which is barry sanders sending in a fax because that's apparently a thing people did in the 90s I, I would have no idea I was born in 2001 but Barry Sanders sends in a fax to his local newspaper in Wichita that he is retiring from the NFL effective immediately and he would not be reporting to Lions training camp 
And this had never really happened before. Like we talked about Billy Sims with injuries and Bo Jackson had injuries, of course, but there'd never been a story of a player in their prime coming off of five consecutive healthy seasons where they rushed for 1500 or they rushed for 1400 yards in every season. The day they retired, they would be a first ballot Hall of Famer. And he had been the Detroit Lions in the 1990s and Barry Sanders was walking away. At a young age too. I think he was 32 at the time that he retired, but it was unlike anything that had been seen and it ensued a debacle that I don't think people were prepared to cover in the sport. And again, this is from secondhand witnessing and seeing documentaries and stories about it. But And this came up again when Andrew Luck retired and I was super fascinated by that. And again, that's secondhand accounts of this, of course, but it seemed like people weren't prepared for this situation because of course, how could you be? And people didn't respond well in their coverage of the Detroit Lions. And that year, people like forget that in 1999, the Lions actually did make the playoffs that year. Like without Barry Sanders, they were the place they'd kind of been for the past few years with Barry Sanders, which is the sixth seed. But it was the third year of Bobby Ross and and people like to think, you know, what could have been had Barry Sanders actually been there in 1999? Could it have been one last run towards the Super Bowl in a super weak NFC that year, like the year before the Vikings had dominated the sport, and then they lost to, uh, I think, the Rams that year. The Rams ended up going to the Super Bowl, and then the year after that, it was that Giants team with Michael Strahan, but it was a transition time in the NFL, and you know, maybe the Lions could have gotten a little closer than 8-8. Eight and eight. It was, a, you know, 8-8 eight and eight is always fluky when you make the playoffs. We saw it last year with the Chicago Bears. Like, that was not a playoff caliber team at 8-8 eight and eight that made it in Chicago. But still, maybe things would have been different had Barry been there. But they make it to the playoffs that year, and they lose in the playoffs to the Washington Racial Slurs, which, fun fact, that would be the Washington Racial Slurs' last playoff victory through modern day because that team has also been terrible across the last, I think across the last 20 years, the Lions and Washington would be the two worst run franchises. And so, as we talked about in the intro, Bobby Ross would get fired after a 9-7 and season the following year where they like they made the playoffs at 8-8, eight and eight, but the next year they would miss the playoffs at 9-7. and seven. They would fire Bobby Ross and that was when like we talked about in the, our uh, opening block, that's when the the decade of mediocrity starts to fall apart. For or, I'm sorry, not mediocrity. The decade of terrible football begins for the Detroit Lions. Like they are consistently one of the four worst teams in the NFL. And for all the jokes that we'd made about the Lions throughout this so far, the Lions had never truly been terrible outside of the two seasons that netted them Billy Sims with the number one overall pick and Barry Sanders with the number three overall pick. Because other than those two, the Detroit Lions had not drafted in the top five across the last 30 years of the NFL. This is pre-expansion days. The Lions were not drafting in the top 10. And so... Detroit comes into this season. To be fair, they did draft one other time. They took Benny Blades with the third overall pick out of Miami in 1988, but that was one year before Barry Sanders. So other than those two years of 4-12 and football 
and the year that they got Billy Sims with the number one pick, the Lions had just been average or playoff good. Like they'd been average to below average, but never terrible. And that's what kind of kicked off the 2000s when they fired Bobby Ross was hiring Marty Maringue. And that's when everything starts to fall off. 2-14 and 14 in 2001. They would end up getting a top pick for their losing that year in 2002. And by the way, they had just hired, um, I believe it was Matt Millen as their general manager, former linebacker, uh, didn't have any front office experience. And he talked about it recently. Like he was surprised when they called and asked him for the to interview because he's like, I- I've never had any experience in a front office as a scout, any of that stuff which doesn't deter from success. Like John Lynch for the 49ers had had no front office experience and he built a near Super Bowl contender. Um, It's just something that Matt Millen talks about later on, considering he's regarded as maybe the worst general manager in the history of the NFL. And so they lose in 2001. They draft Joey Harrington with the third pick in the draft. And Joey Harrington is supposed to be the next great quarterback in the NFL. And so he starts out his career with a 59 quarterback rating, completes 51% of his passes. And this feels like at a time where one, people are forcing quarterbacks into a particular offense. And two, the NFL is moving away from, you know, standard pocket passers who all run the West Coast offense. Now, it wouldn't take until Peyton Manning winning the MVP for that to kick into high gear, but at this time, the Lions were behind the curve, certainly, on this trend. And so Joey Harrington started for four seasons in Detroit. He would get benched in 2005, and these were the four seasons that we mentioned before um, about... After Bobby Ross gets fired, they would have the second worst record in the NFL during that stretch. They would go 2-14 and and draft uh, Harrington. In Harrington's first year, they would go 3-13. and They would draft Charles Rogers with the number two pick in the draft, which ends up going on to be one of the, the most notorious busts in the history of the NFL. He only played three seasons, and then he was basically just cut and never played again in the NFL. Uh, Charles Rogers, I think, is regarded as like the biggest bust wide receiver in the history of the NFL. Um, and so the next year they would go 5-11. and 11. 2004, their top pick would be Roy Williams, which was one of the most head-scratching picks in the history of the NFL. Like it ends up working out in the long run for Detroit, but he was a massive bust in the moment. And ve- well, in the moment he was a bust, he does make a Pro Bowl, but it was a super confounding pick because they had just spent the number two pick on the wide receiver the year before, and now they were spending the number seven pick in the draft on Roy Williams. So that happens. They go five and eleven. Five. This is now Steve Mariucci as head coach. Next year they go six and ten. They get another top ten pick in the draft, and they again pick a wide receiver. They pick Mike Williams out of USC because this is at a time where Charles Rogers is on his way out of the NFL, but it's confounding that three years in a row, they just keep picking wide receivers at the top of the draft. So Mike Williams is out of the NFL by 2011. He only spent two years on the Detroit Lions. And so the Lions continue 
bust after bust, four four years of first round picks at, in the top 10, and all they have left to show for it is Charles Rogers, who they then trade to the Dallas Cowboys in 2007 for a first round pick, which ends up being great value on their part. We'll get to that first round pick later. But after that 5-11 season in 2005, they get another top 10 pick. Who do they pick? They pick Ernie Sims, a linebacker out of Florida. He spends, or Florida State, sorry. He spends four years with the Detroit Lions, out of the NFL by 2013. Never made a Pro Bowl in his career. Universally regarded as a bust by these standards. Not maybe an all-time bust, but still a bust pick on their part. 2006, end up going 3-13. and They get a top pick, and who do they select? Calvin Johnson with the number two pick in the NFL draft, as you heard Roger Goodell say earlier. And so in Calvin Johnson's first year, they end up going 7-9, and and then as a result of that season, they end up getting a middle of the, t- a middle of the draft pick, and they take an offensive lineman named Gosder Shirelis. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Four years with Detroit. Ends up being out of the NFL in eight years. So an above average NFL career. Played guard mostly for the Lions. And, uh, you know, just kind of gets by. Four-year starter. And then this leads us to part five of the story, which is 0-16. Because it's hard to tell the history of the Detroit Lions without talking about 0-16 as its own part of the history. And we could glance over it, but... Really, 0-16 starts to blend into a couple of seasons because it's really more about the 2-30 and stretch Detroit had. And this is more the result of years of bad picks like we talked about there. We talked about four years of picks. Joey Carrington, not on the team by 06. Charles Rogers, not on the team by 06. Mike Williams, not on the team by 06. Roy Williams ends up getting traded to the Dallas Cowboys in 2007. So four years of top 10 picks, not a single thing left to show for it. And so Detroit ends up having this bottoming out that resulted just by chance in the first 0-16 season in the history of the NFL. And to be honest, it could have happened to anyone under these circumstances. The Carolina Panthers got Julius Peppers by losing 15 consecutive games uh, in 2002, like there are 1 in 15 teams all over the place. The Dolphins, when they took Jake Long that 2007 draft, they went 1 in 15 by winning the first game of the season and not winning another one. Like there are tons of teams that could have been the Detroit Lions. It just happened to be a bad break for Detroit that they happened to be the first 0 in 16 team instead of one of these teams that just gets the number 1 pick that we don't remember 20 years later. And it happens to be on the 50-year anniversary of the curse of Bobby Lane, when he says after the Lions get rid of him that the Lions will not win a Super Bowl for 50 years. And on the 50th year of the curse, the Lions went 0-16. And the 0-16 season is, of course, something we remember because it was the first 0-16 season ever. And when there's so few of these things and they and it's the only real sport in America where something like this is possible, it's something that we remember down the line and now becomes a history of the Lions franchise. Even though it's been like 13 years, we still talk about the 0-16 team 
as if it's like part of the history of the Lions because it's a perfect encapsulation of the previous 48 years of crap that we were talking about before getting to 2008. And so the Detroit Lions with Dan Orlovsky running out the back of the end zone and all that stuff, they end up going 0-16. And and we talked about this with the Cleveland Browns when we did our episode about the Cleveland Brown tank and, and Sashi Brown and everything that went there. It's back in April or May. It's gonna I'll I'll try and hyperlink the the Browns one to the archive, but it's it's a long ways back. And Cleveland had never had that level of losing in their franchise's history, and they'd also never had a quarterback like Baker Mayfield or a talented player like Miles Garrett to show for it. There are trade-offs to being all-time bad. And the Lions were going to experience the trade-offs of that all-time bad, but you still have to go through the shame of going 0-16. And if you can survive that shame or that failure, you know, on the back end, you get some kind of reward. And in the case of the Browns, it's already rewarded them with, you know, within three years winning a playoff game, something they hadn't done since the franchise left Cleveland to go to Baltimore in the 1990s. So for a perpetually mediocre franchise like the Browns, that's a bit of a victory. But when it comes to define a decade of losing, and for the first time for Lions fans, like they've had some heartbreaking losses, like we talked about the missed field goal in the 80s, um, losing to the Packers in the 90s with the best versions of your Barry Sanders team. Like they'd had some heartbreaking moments, but they'd never been like all-time bad and we talked about that in part four and part five is just the encapsulation of that with the 0-16 run and so 0-16 in 2008 blends into 2009 and 2010 where in 2009 the Lions also go 2-14 under new head coach Jim Schwartz and then in 2010, they finally start to reap the benefits of that. And you heard at the very beginning, I played the clip of the three draft picks of Calvin Johnson, Matthew Stafford, and Indomitian Sue. And those were the pieces that were kind of like the, the pinpoints of that dynastic run for the Lions. These are once-in-a-generation type of talents. Calvin Johnson being drafted number two at the wide receiver position was a sign of just how great Calvin Johnson is. Wide receivers don't get drafted in the top three. The last cases of it are Larry Fitzgerald, first ballot Hall of Famer, Calvin Johnson, first ballot Hall of Famer, A.J. Green, case for a Hall of Fame, picked at number four, Julio Jones picked at number six, Amari Cooper picked at number four. Like, it's so rare for a wide receiver to get picked that early in the draft that they have to be some level of great off the bat that you know that player is a once in a generation at their position because it only happens every five to ten years. And I classify generations in sports as every five to ten years. You know how, like, we have Gen Z, Gen X, boomers, all that stuff, millennials, etc. Those are every like 15 years, but I think within each 15 year block, there's about three subdivisions because like I can relate to a 22 year old, but it's hard for me to relate to a 15 year old right now at this stage of my life. So I think there's some, their generations are smaller based on when you grow up and when you're in high school, college, etc. So in that five year period, Calvin Johnson is a once in a generation wide receiver. 
Matthew Stafford, who gets picked number one after the 0-16 season, is universally regarded as a quarterback prospect of his generation. Universally regarded as the number one pick. People have been saying he'll be the number one pick in 09 for two years, and he ends up being the number one pick. And then in 2010, with the second pick, they get Ndamukong Sue, defensive tackle, who is regarded as the best defensive tackle prospect across five years because no other defensive tackles get drafted that high. I went back through the archives and it looks like the next closest defensive tackle to get drafted in the top five to seven is DeForest Buckner in 2016 and Leonard Williams in 2015. So it's a long time before a defensive tackle gets drafted at the top of the draft again. And that's just a testament to like Indomitian Sue is this once in a generation talent at his position. And so as a result of all that losing, the Lions get once in a generation talents at those three positions. Two of them just because it fell into their lap. One is because the Raiders took Jamarcus Russell over Calvin Johnson at number one and um, Lane Kiffin talks about later he wanted to take Calvin Johnson, but he didn't have a say in the drafting process. So they gave him Jamarcus Russell, which probably contributed to Jamarcus Russell's failure. And then in the case of Ndamukong Sue, the Rams took Sam Bradford right before Ndamukong Sue fell to the Lions. So they may get him by default, but still they get generational talents at three different positions. And that just doesn't happen in the NFL. Even the Cleveland Browns, who went through all that losing and so many top draft picks, they got three top draft picks in two years, their results for that are Baker Mayfield, Miles Garrett, and Denzel Ward. Two of those may be generational talents, but Baker Mayfield is not universally regarded as a generational talent, and so the fact that the Lions got those three generational talents out of that draft was like... Oklahoma City hitting on Harden, Westbrook, and Durant in three consecutive drafts. Like the Lions had won some kind of a jackpot as a result of all of that losing. Which brings us to the sixth and final part of the oral history, which is the Matthew Stafford and Dominican Sioux run during the 2010s. Because after all the losing in Dominican Sioux's rookie year, they end up winning six games. 2011, they start the season 5-0 and to officially kick off a new decade with a core of the team built on a Hall of Fame wide receiver, a once-in-a-generation quarterback who's finally healthy because Matthew Stafford only played 13 games in his first two seasons, and a defensive tackle on the fast track to the Hall of Fame. The Detroit Lions start the season 5-0 and in 2011, and... Everyone's looking up and saying, this is the final turnaround for the line. The Bears are starting to fall off. The Vikings are no good anymore. Yes, the Green Bay Packers go 15-1 and that year, but through five weeks, the Packers and the Lions are 5-0, and and they're looked upon as two of the best handful of teams in the NFL. Now for Detroit, they end up falling to San Francisco and Atlanta, who end up making NFC championships a couple years later. Then they lose to Chicago, and then they get that matchup with Green Bay. And they lose to Green Bay because, of course, Green Bay was a wagon that year. They went 15-1. and It was the best Aaron Rodgers team he's had 
and just unfortunate for the Lions that their best year happened to be in the same year as the best year for Aaron Rodgers. Because as great as Matthew Stafford was as a prospect, it's hard to compete with Matt, with Aaron Rodgers. And so Rodgers wins MVP. They get to the last week of the season that year, and they end up playing in I mean in a game where the Packers end up sitting a bunch of their starters. The Lions end up putting up 41 points on the Green Bay Packers. They lose 35. They, I mean, Matt Flynn kind of goes berserk, but they end up 45 to 41 in a shootout that gets the Lions to the playoffs, even in loss. They're able to make it to the playoffs by clinching the last day of the season. They go 10 and 6. They make it to the playoffs. They take on the Saints for their first playoff game since 1999 trying to win their first playoff game since 1991 people are actually picking them to beat the saints in this game this is a saints team that two years ago won the super bowl matthew stafford wins comeback player of the year and unfortunately this was not the year of a good defense because one of my favorite stats is that matthew stafford in his entire lions career had one top 10 defense so they get all these prospects in there. They draft like Brandon Pettigrew. They get Javid Best. They get all kinds of people in there. And unfortunately, they don't quite get over the Saints in that first year. Saints are a wagon on offense. They're, the Lions defense is terrible. Calvin Johnson had a couple touchdowns in that game, but ultimately it didn't do anything to dent because their defense was just too bad. And it's unfortunate for Detroit. But then they come back 2012. And the Detroit Lions end up going 4-12. and Stafford gets hurt, all that stuff. Not not a great year for Detroit. Uh, actually, I don't think Stafford did get hurt that year. I think they just stunk that year. Um, and then 2013 is the year when Calvin Johnson breaks all the records. And Calvin Johnson ends up with the receiving record. Uh, and Matthew, St- I mean... He ends up with receiving touchdowns, getting close to the record, and it is on a Monday night game when Calvin Johnson breaks the NFL's all-time record for receiving yards in a season that the Lions missed the playoffs, because of course that was when the Lions missed the playoffs, was Calvin Johnson breaking every record in the history books, and their defense was just awful that year, because that's how the Lions roll. 2014, though, is the one season where the Lions had a top 10 defense. And they end up making the playoffs that year. They only lose by four to Tony Romo's Cowboys, but they were a six seed, so it was still kind of seen as a victory. Uh, this was Jim Caldwell's first year as coach. Uh, Tony Romo, again, this I think that was two playoff wins Tony Romo had in his career, one of them coming against the Lions. So the following year, they go 7-9. and nine. And then Calvin Johnson retires in, again, shocking fashion. I don't think people were really prepared for Calvin Johnson to retire at the young age that he did. And it felt like, oh my gosh, is this parallels for a new generation? Is this Calvin Johnson's retirement mirroring Barry Sanders' retirement? And this is how the, the generations switch and the Lions dynasty comes to an end. I don't even think people at the time could have seen the exact parallels of what would happen to the Lions afterwards and how they mirrored the Bobby Ross situation. We talked about it at the top of the show. 
They would go 9-7 and seven the following year and make the playoffs. Now they'd lose to the Seattle Seahawks because, again, they had a bottom 10 defense that snuck into the playoffs because Matthew Stafford had, at the time, the best statistical season of his career, 4,300 yards, finished with uh, 24 touchdowns, 10 picks. It was a great, great season for the Lions in 2016. And then they go 9-7 and seven the following year, miss the playoffs. Stafford actually threw more touchdowns that year than he did in 2016. He had 29 with 10 interceptions that year. And the Lions just kind of became the kings of the comebacks. And Matthew Stafford, I've talked about it before, like Matthew Stafford is, for his generation, the first brainchild of the new offensive revolution. It's why I say all the time, Matthew Stafford right now is the fastest quarterback in NFL history to 20,000 passing yards, 30,000 passing yards, and he will be the fastest to reach 40,000 passing yards. He's going to break a bunch of records in the sport, maybe even get close to like top five all-time in passing yards, and then all the people drafted after him are just going to skyrocket past that record for Matthew Stafford because it's just at a time when there weren't a lot of 4,000-yard quarterbacks, and Matthew Stafford played in an offense that relied on him throwing the ball 40, 50 times, and now players get that more because more chances are taken down the field. Mahomes is going to blow past Matthew Stafford's numbers for fewest games to reach 20,000, 30,000 passing yards. But at the time, Matthew Stafford just happened to be in an offense that demanded he lead a bunch of comebacks, throw the ball 40, 50 times because the Lions were just getting outscored so much and they were always down a touchdown. And Stafford would lead him back through, you know, a broken elbow or a broken wrist or a broken hand, because that's how Matthew Stafford did it. And they'd go nine and seven in 2017. And Bob Quinn was the new general manager, and he wanted to bring in his own guy from the Patriots. So he fired Jim Caldwell, hired Matt Patricia. We talked about it before. Matt Patricia ended up starting his career, or well, I guess ending his career, because <laughs> he would get fired partway through the season. But Matt Patricia and the four, the the three coaches afterwards would go fourteen, thirty six, and one throughout the season, and then Matt Patricia would end up getting fired. Daryl Bevel would be the interim coach, which I don't know why we're still employing Daryl Bevel. And then, of course, we now have the man Campbell, 0-3 Lions, who at least, like I talked about before, look like they have a plan. That's the victory you can say there. At least they look like they have a plan. But the mirror images of those two and the definition of insanity idea is truly unbelievable when you think about it. That the Lions just mirrored the same mistakes across the same family owning the team for 60 years Ford Hamps, and now I believe there's a new Ford Hamp who's running the team as of this year, and so maybe this is the turn of a new dawn for the Detroit Lions, but even with three generational talents, the Lions still ended up with three playoff wins and no division titles to show for three generational talents at three different positions one of which happened to be the most important position on the field, which is quarterback. And they let Stafford go to the team he wanted to go to. They did right by Stafford. They've done everything well as a franchise, and it's why I think that the Detroit Lions are going to be good three, four years from now. It's going to be a long rebuild, 
and they should be selling pieces now and bottoming out to get one of these generational type maybe offensive tackles just to to lose and get those picks now while you have the chance. But Detroit has what looks like another plan. And it's okay to admit that failure, and the Lions know better than anyone else. You can spend decades in the doldrums of the NFL. I talk about this with the Packers right now. You can always be 6-10. and 10. The Success is not guaranteed because you're the Packers. Someone will make a turn in that division. I don't know if it's the Vikings or the Bears, or maybe it's going to be the Lions. But that success is not always guaranteed at the top, even if it's felt like that for about 30 years. And yes, that great Lions team with Sue and Stafford and Calvin Johnson just happened to exist at the same time as the Green Bay Packers. It's just an unfortunate situation for them. I think if not for existing at the same time in the same division as a dynastic team, they probably would have had better, you know, maybe a home playoff game, which they still haven't had since the 1993 game against the Packers. Jesus, that's kind of crazy to think about. Maybe they would have had a home playoff game within the last three decades if they don't coexist at the same time as the Green Bay Packers. Maybe they win a division with Stafford and company. Maybe they get to have a better defense because it's a more attractive place. I don't know. It could have all broken their way, and maybe that part is just bad luck. But from this point forward, it is at least a changing time again. And the Lions have decided that we're the way we're going to build is from the bottom back up. And maybe they're going through the 2000s all over again. I mean, they picked Jeff Okuda at number three, and that pick's starting to look like a bust like a Joey Carrington or a, uh, a Charles Rogers or uh, a Mike Williams. But... Even still, now I think what they had Sewell last year, Hawkinson is a great pick. They're building something. It's a long ways away, and you know, six decades of failure doesn't give you hope, but at least it looks like they have a plan. And this is the end of the sixth part, which brings us to the present, which is, you know, the Justin Tucker kick might actually come back to be a beneficiary for them. Because that kick could end up being the difference between a top pick. And honestly, that's all the Lions can care about this year. Is how do we get to the top of that draft? It's a team that's designed to be bad. And it looks like they have a plan for a long-term build. They're giving the faith to Man Campbell, even if Man Campbell's not going to get to be the person to see it through. Because rarely does the person who do all the losing get to, to bear the fruits of their labor. Not the general manager, not the coach. The person who does the losing rarely gets to see the whole thing through. But Man Campbell's a transition coach. And maybe Holmes, the GM, is a transition GM. Or maybe he'll get four, five, six years to see it through. But at least it looks like organizationally there's a plan. And if there's something that's going to give Lions fans hope, maybe it's that there's a new owner. Yes, part of the same family, but still a new owner within the organization. So... Even if this is a sad oral history of the Detroit Lions, maybe there's a little bit of hope at the end of this story. So I hope you've enjoyed the oral history of the Detroit Lions here on the Take It Easy podcast. 
Make sure to download, follow, and leave a five-star review on the podcast feed, and maybe we'll do more of these. We'll bring back the What If Wednesdays, maybe. We got these, of course. Um, I like this idea. This is inspired by the John Boys YouTube series, where he does like six-part series about the histories of different franchises. They did one on the Mariners, one on the Falcons. But this is kind of the oral history of the Detroit Lions capped into one hour of research. And one hour of recording, of course. And this was really fun for me, so I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, take it easy. And we will talk to you again tomorrow. Have a great, great day, everybody. <laughs>